Welcome to the EPP podcast on the rights of the child. Today we're looking at the issue of how to champion children's rights through empowerment. How listened to do children feel today compared with 10 or even 20 years ago? How do children in Europe fare compared to the rest of the world and what more can we do? Today's guests will be talking about what can be achieved through policy and will give real-world examples that could help to empower children. After all, children are not only vulnerable individuals but can also be informed decision-makers. But of course, we cannot discuss empowerment without mentioning children in vulnerable situations, migrants, those with disabilities or even those living in poverty. To discuss this today, I'm joined in the studio by MEP Roberta Metzola and Jana Hainsworth, Secretary-General of Eurochild. Thank you very much for joining me today. So let's start, Roberta, with a first question for you. Where are we at today? Are children empowered? And how has the situation evolved over the last 10, 20 or even 30 years? Well, let's just say that big advances have taken place since, for example, when I went to school. Uh, so let's talk about those three decades that you just mentioned there. A little bit more, actually. But uh, I think one of the most meaningful exchanges I've had recently was about kids who uh, have now faced a second uh, scholastic year at home. Uh, and it makes a difference. They feel alone. They've only sat at a desk. Some of them have sat for difficult exams. And But the most they feel is the lack of content and contact with their friends, students, uh, teachers uh, who could help them academically, socially, but ultimately mentally. So we've done a lot. We have the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, which is, I think, one of the most ratified uh, human rights treaties in the world with 194 signatories. You have a specific article in the Charter of Fundamental Rights, Article 34, that specifically talks about uh, that children may express their views freely. So we have the framework, we have the papers, uh, the documents, the laws. We, I think, need to do more to make it more, let's say, um, tangible in practice, that it exists for them, that they can feel it. Uh, And this year, I think, should be a wake-up call for us in that regard. So we are now over 30 years since the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child was adopted by the UN General Assembly. And this is the most widely ratified UN instrument across the world. And it recognizes children as rights bearers um, and really reinforces the basic set of universal ethical standards that children have entitlement to, and it sets out civil, political, economic, social, cultural rights of every child. And we cannot stress enough how important that milestone has been for changing mindsets around the um, the capacities of children, as you said in your introduction, you know, we're not talking about children only as, as victims or as vulnerable or in need of protection, but as real protagonists of their lives. Um, in terms of where we are, I mean, if I take a, a wide angle view, there's undoubtedly been enormous progress in those 30 years since adoption of the UN Convention recognition of children as rights holders is more widely understood and it's been a really important driver of change. Uh, We've seen increases in girls' education, poverty reduction, visibility and effectiveness of children and youth activists. But there's undoubtedly huge challenges still remain. Thank you for that. Now, one of the things you mentioned was child participation. So what does child participation actually mean? Can you give me any practical examples? 
Yeah. Um, at the heart of any rights-based approach, so if you're recognizing that children have rights, you cannot take decisions on their behalf without actively involving them in those decisions making, actively um, hearing out their views, their opinions, their experiences. Um, and, and for us, child participation is the cornerstone of delivering on children's rights in the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. Um, and sometimes the biggest challenge to that is, is attitudes of adults, that there's a perception that children don't lack the maturity to be influencing decisions or playing an active role in society. And it is true that adults have a duty and a responsibility to protect, care for, to educate, and, and really importantly, to be showing a positive role model and example to children. Um, but from a children's rights perspective, we're recognizing that every child from day one, from moment of birth, is born as a human being that has an impact on the, their surroundings, on the world around them. So what that actually means in practice, um, it, it ranges from all kinds of issues. If we talk about trying to um, address huge um, vulnerabilities, I mean, you mentioned at the opening around children with uh, um, in migration, children with disabilities, children with minority ethnic backgrounds, how do we promote inclusion? If we are to, if we're think, thinking about those issues, we cannot address those challenges without asking children and young people themselves about what their experience is. Um, we're now working, for example, on a, a project around Roma inclusion and how children of Roma background are, can, can influence their access to, to healthcare services. We know that um, Roma are particularly disadvantaged and discriminated against, both in the education system, in healthcare, and we want to ask them what helps, what makes them feel um, accepted, what feel, helps them reach out for the support and um, services that they need to, to grow and thrive. And that's sort of, it's a, it's a fundamental basic human right to be able to deliver change in the most effective way. We are very much committed to um, put our money where our mouth is and really deliver on involving children in our work. Um, since 2017, we've had ourselves a Eurochild Children's Council, so a group of 12 children who are selected through our very wide membership. Um, these are, it's important to say that our membership is working with sometimes very vulnerable um, children who don't necessarily have other opportunities to participate. And they come together and they, they are advising us on our, our governance. They are organizing events, they are facilitating workshops, um, and they are also involved at their local and regional level in promoting engagement of children. So they might be asking children um, their views and opinions on the situation regarding the, the COVID pandemic and how they're dealing with online learning and, and all of these um, areas where it's really important that we hear children's views and children themselves can be the best um, designers of that, that research and those surveys.
Yeah, that children are not tokens. Uh, when we talk about participation, it means we hear them, we listen to them, we ask from them what they think they their world would deserve for it to be better, but also not for us just to listen and then walk off. Uh, I am looking, in fact, at this conference on the future of Europe as having a specific children's section to it so that we hear them tell us, but also, most importantly, that they criticize us, that they hold us to account, that they come back to us when it comes for our next election round and tell us, you promised us this, you did not deliver. How can we trust you again? That's the answer that politicians need to answer. That's how I run my political life and hold my political responsibility, by knowing whether I could answer every person I've met on the campaign trail, including children, I meet a lot of them, that I've addressed their, 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 their situations. One other practical example, there was a, a child, a six-year-old boy, who wrote to me a few weeks ago to tell me that not everybody has food in school in his class. Uh, that not everybody has uh, has the money to buy the uniform in, in certain schools. You know, problems that are bigger now than they were, but I would have hoped that over the past 30 years we would have solved that, that we would have given equal access to everybody living in the EU. Uh, let's start with that, you know, because we need to be an example for the rest of the world. We talk about the EU effect, the Brussels effect. Has that trickled down in education? I think the jury is out there. I think a lot of work needs to be done. Our group in European Parliament, the EPP group, works very hard in this regard, but we still need a lot to do, and it takes more than just commitment, it needs action, and needs proper, tangible um, solutions for, for challenges that our children uh, in our societies face every day. How can we create an environment in which disadvantaged children can learn to take advantage of all the possibilities that the EU provides um, and that might be more accessible to their peers, but to, if you like, lift up these disadvantaged kids? Roberta, let me ask you to start with that. I think this year has highlighted the the problems that exist, the challenges that we have in Europe, uh, perhaps before we either ignored them or weren't even aware of uh, the vulnerabilities we have. Uh, and children have been at the receiving end uh, of, let's say, that challenge by, first of all, staying at home, uh, realizing that not everybody has equal access to digital possibilities to learn. Um, uh, health access differs so differently from one country to another. Um, parents, depending on whether they lost their job or they kept it. So poverty has increased. Uh, and I think that moving forward, after we've taken pretty drastic and strong decisions here in the parliament by adopting unprecedented amount of money to be given to our member countries, then we need to make sure that that comes and trickles down to all our communities that are either um, uh, vulnerable systemically or they have been marginalized during the pandemic. And how can we fix the system in order to make sure that their access is, is, is guaranteed in the future? Jana, let me ask you then the same thing. How, how do we help lift up these children in reduced circumstances? Yeah, it's often when we think about children's participation, it's very easy to give those opportunities to those children that already have access or have um, parents that are supporting them, um, good opportunities in education. And we really need to make sure that when we're thinking about children's rights to participate, we are reaching to all children and in particular those that don't traditionally 
um, have this kind of access. And, and as Roberta said, during this pandemic period, we've really seen very, very vividly the, the divides in our society. And in particular now, um, as participation happens pre- predominantly online, um, that sort of digital divide is so fundamentally important. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we our members would be really working with some of the most vulnerable children and young people, um, children with disabilities, Roma, LGBTQI, those from a migrant background, um, children who are caring for um, infirm or elderly um, family members, um, those children with imprisoned parents. And we need to think sort of broadly, how, how do we make sure that children feel valued and feel listened to, whatever their whatever their circumstances might be. And this children's rights approach is recognizing that children are part of the solution. So when we're addressing inequality and poverty, we need to involve them in the discussion and in the conversation to find the solutions um, that they can really contribute to and shape. Well, let me turn now to a question on Supporting children from early stage childhood and education right all the way through to their first jobs. How do we look at this over the, the, the lifespan of the child? Um, Jana, what are your suggestions that you would like to see when people take account of this? Yeah, um, so we know so much nowadays about early childhood development, brain development in those crucial first months and years of a child's life. Um, how much the the environment that they're growing up in, the stimulus they receive, will provide the strong foundations for life opportunities or not. Um, And that's why there is justifiably a really strong focus on early childhood. Um, And in fact, you're a child together with the International Step-by-Step Association has a campaign called First Years, First Priorities, and it's looking at how we make sure that all children have a fair start in life, um, particularly looking at the most vulnerable, those living in precarious family situations, those with a migrant background, children with disabilities, children are at risk, because we cannot afford to allow those children not to receive the nurturing care that they receive, they, they need to, to grow and thrive. And that's not only about early childhood education and care. I know this is a important political priority, but that's often been framed in through the lens of encouraging and enabling parents to go back into work. And we wanted to kind of change that framing and look at early childhood education and care as a right for all young children to grow and develop and learn and socialize. Um, and we're, we're happy that, that that's getting some more attention. And, and with this recovery period, I think more investment in out-of-home care services for children and families will be absolutely crucial. Um, and seeing children, as I say, from the earliest years as protagonists, and then how that translates into the education system, you know, we need to move away from education being, you know, what can we, we teach children? How do we enable children to learn better, to understand how they learn, and to use schools as experiments in healthy social relationships and society where teachers respect the pupils, pupils respect the teachers, they respect each other. Um, all of the, um, the, the, the knowledge that we have now about healthy learning environments, that needs to be brought into, into our schooling system. And that's why this focus on children through the European Union is so important nowadays. It's not 
you can't just expect to invest in sort of throw up your arms in horror and look at youth unemployment. Youth unemployment does not arrive out of a vacuum. Youth unemployment arrives when children are not supported in developing their own um, skills, their understanding themselves, knowing what, um, how, how they learn, what motivates them. And that's why we believe that this prioritization of, of children and early childhood is such an important piece of the long-term sustainability of, of our societies. Well, thank you, Roberta. Talk to me about, from your view, what are the different priorities from early stage to late teens? Well, how right, Jana, is in, in, in picking on that last point on youth unemployment. It's almost like we're surprised, you know, when societies actually um, are fare quite, quite badly uh, because of, you know, vulnerable situations, um, decades-long unemployment statistics, etc., children bringing up, being brought up in, 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 in marginalised families. So there, I think we need to use this time to identify what our priorities are, uh, precisely in making sure that there is a possibility for children to be brought up with others, that they can start to learn immediately, that their situation um, depends, of course, on, on their household, but not only. Uh, how important that is. Uh, I have seen this in person. I, I, as a member of the European Parliament, I, I like to go around schools and tell everybody how great it is to be a member of the European Parliament. I'm encouraging, and I do this mostly with the young girls, in order to try to encourage young girls to stand up, because not enough do it in my country, uh, either to enter politics or, or believe in a cause, fight for it and go, go for it. Uh, but that all stopped. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the best advantages of them meeting people from outside, them meeting different adults um, who give them a new perspective on life uh, is one of the best things you can have uh, in, in, in society for children to be able to use that experience to grow and learn uh, outside the school. And, and another thing perhaps to bring in, uh, we still have too little critical thinking at kids' age that we talk about, yes, empowerment, but children are not tokens. We forget that children are not only for them to be on a billboard every election or on stage with politicians. Children are the part of society that we need to learn from and hear from. And, you know, their, their honesty, <laughs> I'm the mother of four, is, is what, you know, uh, gets me into trouble <laughs> in many situations. But that's a good thing. Uh, and I, and I, I, I really think, for example, now one of the ideas that we have is that, you know, we're talking about the Conference on the Future of Europe, we're talking about, you know, a bottom-up process, not top-down, you know, how can we make sure this is a success? I mean, if we exclude children from this debate as to where they see Europe, and it doesn't have to be a big thing because everybody knows, you know, like, okay, I'm born in, in Denmark and my, you know, my parents like to go to Sweden for summer or my grandparents have come from there or everybody has, you know, migrated from one country to another. We can remind people that life is not only about, you know, playing video games or being online, chatting with their friends right after they've seen them in school, <laughs> but more about, you know, how to influence the life that they'd like to, to, to change or that needs to change to also address their, their concerns growing up and going forward. 
Well, a final question to you then, Roberta, is what are the key elements for child-friendly legislation that the EU needs to put in place to empower children? I know this is something that the EPP has been strongly looking at. Yes, absolutely. And, and here I, I would really like to commend the work of my colleague, uh, Eva Kopacz, who fellow vice president of the European Parliament with me. Uh, and she has been such a pioneer in this. And it's good to see that we are pushing for child-friendly tools everywhere. And the European Commission has come up with a strategy. We have um, uh, the recommendations and the child guarantee. You know, we are, you know, pioneering, let's say, children's consultation. But we are already late doing that, right? Uh, so we need to strengthen our expertise. We need to strengthen our practice on having child participation across the board. Uh, that could be at all levels, at schools, at local levels, national, also European. Importantly, I think we need to have a child-friendly justice system. I think we need to have systems that are tailor-made to to allow for children, um, whether they are witnesses, whether they are part of a very, very difficult family uh, dispute, but also if they are um, perpetrators or offenders themselves. That we had situations in, in, in my country, uh, Malta, where you have children um, convicted of, of committing an act, a criminal act, at age 16, but they are still waiting to be sentenced today. Uh, so they were charged and never sentenced. And what do you do with a child who's basically his life is over because he can't get a job and nobody will touch him literally, legally? Uh, you know, so a system that will allow for the sense of forgiveness uh, and, 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 and reconciliation in society would also allow children not to be forgotten in a very, very otherwise uh, broken justice system that we have in many member states. Well, thank you very much, Jana, and thank you, Roberta, uh, for, for giving me your insights today. Now, indeed, I did catch up with MEP Eva Kopacz to talk about this question. What about the right to be heard? What creates a more children-friendly justice system? The EU is doing its part of the job, but what about national legislation? So join me in just a moment when we talk about all of that. What are the key elements of child-friendly legislation that the EU should put in place to strengthen the rights and position of children? Well, to create good and effective laws for a special group of young citizens, they should be involved in the work on these regulations. Because these regulations in the future will concern them. Many policies and many regulations affect children and young people directly and indirectly. And this is not just happening at EU level, it is happening first and foremost in the member states. Today the young people take up the initiative, they are the ambassadors of the change which should take place. Therefore, when we prepare new legislation, it should be checked against the protection and realization of the rights of those who it will affect, children. We are talking here about very broad systemic change. This is particularly important now, when we are emerging from a pandemic, when we must pay attention to the needs and expectations of our youngest citizens. Kiedy musimy zwrócić uwagę na potrzeby i oczekiwania naszych najmłodszych obywateli. Młodzi ludzie mają potrzebę 
być aktywnymi w tym obszarze. Chcą być... Young people want to be active. They want to be involved in the whole process. They have their opinions not only on the existing legislation, but also, for example, on the subject of climate change. They want a safe internet, equal access to education and health services, and they want their voice to be very clear, strong and heard. So I think it is high time to create mechanisms which will allow this at EU level. This is not about burdening children and young people with making decisions, because adults are responsible for it, and it is they who consciously take responsibility for these decisions. The point is that children should be involved in discussions and have the opportunity to present their point of view. In some EU countries, mechanisms for the child participation are already in place and are yielding very good results. Mechanizmy uczestnictwa dzieci i młodzieży są już stosowane i przynoszą no, bardzo dobre efekty. Reasumując, kluczowymi elementami to sum up, the key elements in creating child-friendly legislation are access to properly processed data, cooperation with non-governmental organizations, which usually have access to the most vulnerable groups, and cooperation with the most interested groups, the ones I have been talking about so far, children and young people. Now, the EPP Group Position Paper on Children's Rights talks about a children's rights test, what exactly is this and how would such a tool help in the development of legislation that takes into account the perspective of children themselves? When we talk about child-friendly legislation, we are talking in fact about the process of creating legislation which will not harm. At European Union level, proposals for new legislation or amendments to existing ones are, of course, submitted by the European Commission that has at its disposal a whole arsenal of tools used in preparing what is known as an impact assessment. This is where the children's rights test could come into play. Similar to the SME test, the children's rights test could involve several stages and I will take the liberty of listing them. Consultation with stakeholders including a mechanism for child participation, identification of areas for action, measuring the impact on children and evaluation of alternative mechanisms. Such a test within an impact assessment process would provide an opportunity to identify and provide measures that help realize and protect children's rights while ensuring children's right to participate. Let us now turn to another issue, building a justice system that's more child-friendly. What needs to be done in this area? Children face the justice system in many circumstances, as suspected offenders within the juvenile justice system, as uh, victims and witnesses of crime, but also and increasingly when the family court is deciding on the future of a child, when it is deciding on custody. In all these situations, children should be treated as individuals and with respect, and decisions should be made in the best interest of the child. For this to happen, two issues are crucial. The child's right to be heard in their own case, and the child's right to reliable age-appropriate information. An encounter with the justice system must not end in trauma for the child. 
The child should feel safe and the judge or a psychologist appropriately trained to conduct the training should create conditions that allow the child to express his or her thoughts and experiences freely. So the EU obviously has to do its part, but what about national legislation, so-called member state legislation? What can be done at an EU level and what can be done at that level, at that national level? This is the most important issue. Many policies which directly affect children and young people such as education, social care or the justice system including family law and criminal law remain an exclusive competence of the member state. At the same time many of the problems are very similar. These problems have no borders such as the fight against the sexual exploitation of children online, the fight against child poverty, ensuring equal and universal access to education and health services, as well as many more. And we can solve many of these problems by working together, both at EU level and at national level. We can learn from each other and exchange good and proven practices. The Union and the Member States are not in competition with each other here. Let us therefore remember this and let us cooperate because our objective is above all to ensure the safety and good future of our youngest citizens. Thank you very much for joining me today and for giving your insight on this important topic. And thanks everyone for listening. This podcast has been produced by the EPP Group in the European Parliament. Follow the EPP Group via EPP Group on all social media channels and tune in next week for a new podcast episode.